Welcome back to another episode of Never Lick the Spoon, with me, Kieran Brophy. You're in for a treat this episode as we look at how little tiny bacteria could cause mass hysteria for both good and scary reasons, and all not too far away on the horizon. Later we'll delve into the good bit and ask the age-old question, is there life on Mars? Or at least, could we find evidence for it in the past? And that's with a very special guest who could potentially, at least, be one of the first people to definitively answer that age-old question. But first, as the coronavirus is showing, disease can spread across the world in a matter of just days and weeks. As covered in a previous episode, the discovery of antibiotics over 100 years ago has allowed us to treat bacterial infections that previously would have decimated populations, bubonic plague being the most potent example. However, bacteria can adapt and become resistant to antibiotics. The more widely they're used, the more likely they are to adapt. So, the question is, does the rising problem of antimicrobial resistance mean we're heading for an unstoppable pandemic, maybe even the return of bubonic plague? Or is this still the fantasies of a Hollywood exec? To find out more, I went to see Dr. John Otter. He's a senior manager at the Infection Protection Control Service at Imperial College London. I first asked John, should we be alarmed by this spreading resistance and what we can do as individuals to stop it? Yeah, so, so I think that there's definitely things we can do as individuals and in this country we can self-manage, we can take good care of ourselves, take away the risk factors that can cause infections like drinking too much, smoking, being obese, all become risk factors for general poor health and um, infectious diseases prey upon poor health. So if we keep ourselves healthy, there's less chance we get infected in the first place. If we get infected and we go to the GP, um, the GP may well say, you might need antibiotics, but not now. Whereas in times past, they might well have said, not sure about this, I'll give you antibiotics. So that narrative is slightly changing from the GP land, and we should be aware of that and not go with an expectation for antibiotics. We can also, when we're, when we're told we do need antibiotics, finish the course, follow the instructions. And subtle things like when you finish the course, make sure you give the antibiotic either back to the pharmacy and don't chuck it down the drain. Because if we put antibiotics into the environment, that creates bigger issues. Somewhere, somewhere along the line, somebody thought, what can we do instead of antibiotics? I know what we'll do, we'll give the patient poo. So they've, they take poo from a donor, screen it, blend it, and literally in a, in a blender you'd have in your kitchen, stick, yeah. a, stick a tube down your mouth or up your bum, and deliver the poo to your gut. And the most amazing thing is the curate of this therapy for recurrent seed of infection. Remember the curate for antibiotics is about 30%, 90%. So nine in 10 patients that went through fecal microbiota transplantation, FMT for short, end up without recurrent C. diff in the follow-up period. So, you know, it just illustrates how important gut health is and the, and the downsides of antibiotics. That's absolutely amazing. With our Hollywood screenplay hats on, could you imagine something like, something like a contagion where you have a virus, say it adapts, it becomes lethal to humans and it spreads across the world without, without us having any defence? Is that... Is that plausible? All right, Kieran, I'm going to go. I'm going to show my age now. 
and pull you up on Contagion because it's not the best ID movie out there. You need to go back to 1995 with Dustin Hoffman and look at Outbreak. Have you seen Outbreak? Uh, unfortunately, it's before my time, John. <laughs> well, you should get it out. You should pull out the VCR, buy a VCR player and put it on because it's brilliant. There's a moment where they realise the transmission route of the virus has changed, as you said, and it's become airborne. It's airborne. It's great. It's a bit cheesy and obviously very unrealistic. There's a really important point that um, the kind of organisms that have this so-called pandemic potential are usually viruses. And viruses are not affected by antibiotics. So they're very different beasts. There's a, there's a quote that I picked up somewhere, I can't remember where now, that viruses are as different from bacteria as goldfish are from giraffes. They're different in their structure, they're different in their function, they're different in their philosophy, if microbes have philosophy, in the way that they operate and what they're trying to do. So viruses are sort of fundamentally more aggressive in their life cycle. They, they infect other cells and they, they sort of take over the, the, the mechanisms of the cell to produce their own proteins. Whereas bacteria are usually very happy with a symbiotic type of existence. So if you look at all the organisms with true pandemic potential, it's, it's viruses. And do we have viruses that, that have the potential to do that in the future? Well, we already have one. It's called influenza. So it has caused global pandemics already. I mean, the, the 1918 Spanish flu, infamous because it killed more people than the First World War. Um, that, that was a serious outbreak with a nasty strain. We had the, the swine flu in um, relatively recent history. And some of the serology data that, that's been investigated since then showed that a huge quantity of the global population had some kind of exposure to this virus. And we, we got lucky in that it, it wasn't as virulent as, as it could have been and might be in the future. So I think we already have our pandemic virus in influenza. So we need to prepare for that eventuality. But uh, I'm, I'm not a specialist in, in vir pandemic viruses. I don't for a moment think that I am. But, uh, but I, do, I do wonder whether um, the viruses that are really nasty and virulent almost blow themselves out. Because if you look at the really successful infectious diseases, it's the ones that have the ability to cohabit with their host to a degree. Um, you know, malaria is a classic example. It's got millions of different life cycles and intricacies and ways of evading immune systems. Uh, so, that, so I think in a way they're, they're the more scary infectious diseases than the ones that might seem hugely dramatic. So it's the idea of almost keeping the host alive. Yeah, exactly keeps them alive as well yeah that's um very reassuring and it's also reassuring to know that um you amongst other researchers in imperial are looking at smart surfaces ideally anyway would have the uh, the ability to kill bacteria without you know having to clean a surface it, it just naturally it's built in uh, in the surface that it would it would kill bacteria um do you think this is the future for things like hospitals for example I think it's part of the future. I think it's a fairly small part of the future, but, a, but, a, but a, a significant part of the future. So we need to talk about the inanimate environment. So you mentioned Contagion. It's, a, it's an infectious diseases movie. And at the end, it's got a brilliant reveal, a disease, a disease transmission sequence that starts with the poultry farm in Asia. And you see the roots of transmission through, that you, you had seen through the film all come in at the end in this disease transmission sequence. 
and there's a mixture of animate surfaces so people to people but also inanimate touch surfaces involved in that transmission and that's true of life so, so these antibody resistant bacteria and their virus fungi all kinds of other cousins are transmitted by both animate and inanimate surfaces we know that contaminated surfaces are important in disease transmission historically speaking in hospital settings there's been a sense that that's been a very minor player in the overall picture of disease transmission but data over the past decade or so has turned that on its head and actually suggested that contaminated surfaces are a major player in the transmission of some pathogens at least some of the time so for example i'm always conscious in public places maybe it's just me of door handles like literally grabbing a door handle is is that like am i right to think twice whenever i'm literally opening a door in a hospital no, I think, I think you're wrong to think twice. I'll tell you why. So take, take the mindset away from general surfaces, healthy people. We're surrounded by organisms. Some of them are resistant, some of them are not. Probably not the major issue. What I'm talking about really is a susceptible patient debilitated in a hospital setting. That's when contamination of the environmental surfaces can really play a key role in transmission. Um, so, for example, you know, contaminated bed rails, um, contaminated tables in a near patient environment um, can find their way into and onto patients who don't have their usual defences in place. So the question then becomes, how do we tackle this contamination of the inanimate environment? We need to make sure cleaning and disinfection when it's needed is tip-top and optimised to the extent possible. But cleaning is only ever going to be a point in time. So you can't have continuous cleaning, and yet we know that we shed bacteria and other organisms into the environment constantly. So having a technology that has a background level of activity in reducing the level of contamination um, is quite appealing as an idea. It's not something that will replace cleaning and disinfection. It's not something that will revolutionise healthcare going forward but it could be something that's quite widely adopted as a background intervention that could reduce the risk of transmission. Well, that all sounds very exciting. Um, I think the moral of the story from, from, this, uh, from this piece is don't get sick. Yeah. And um, John, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. All right. Thank you, Kieran. And that was John Otter speaking to me there. Next up, the question, is there life on Mars, is something that has captured public imaginations from David Bowie to H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, and that was over a century ago. This year, NASA hopes to definitively answer that question by launching the Mars 2020 rover. Right at the heart of this exciting new mission is a past Imperial PhD student, Joseph Rosal Hollis, Joby. On a trip back to his native London, I caught up with Joby and began by asking him what the Mars 2020 mission was all about. The Mars 2020 mission is a robotic rover uh, similar to the Curiosity rover that's currently driving around on Mars. It's about the size of a car, it's nuclear powered, and it will have uh, seven scientific instruments on it. The whole goal of the mission is to explore a particular part of Mars where we can see from like orbit that the geography was affected by water, right? We can see that there were there used to be a river channel there that kind of let fed into a lake. It's produced a delta. All of these features are kind of associated with flowing water, kind of really rich in sediments and clays that are really, really good at preserving organic matter. And when you're trying to look for signs of past life on another planet, 
life for us basically means we are looking for organic matter and water. That's amazing and incredibly exciting to be involved in such a mission as well. What are the chances of just finding a fossilised bacteria when you actually arrived there? The chances of finding a fossilised bacteria, we honestly don't know. We've only sent eight landers to Mars already, so we've only sampled eight locations across the entire planet. And so far we have not found any evidence of like fossilised bacteria or multicellular organisms, anything like that. But the thing we see in uh, this delta is quite is very consistent with the flow of water that's rich in particulates like kind of like tiny particles of clay and sand. And then as the water sp- like spreads out into this lake, the area of still water, uh, the water slows down and drops all of the sediment, all these particles it was carrying. And that gradually builds up into this kind of big flowing sort of fan shaped piece of geography that is the delta Uh, so it's very very consistent based on everything we know on earth at least that this was produced by flowing water Um, what's more we actually have been able to uh, identify some of the materials in this delta from orbit so there are cameras that can detect infrared um, there's infrared signatures of uh, minerals such as carbonates and sulfates which form when water evaporates away and leaves behind salt so, you know, if you've ever seen like a salt bed, like, um, you know, you, there are often these kind of very, these used to be lakes. And then as the water evaporated away, all the salt in the water was dried out and you leave behind this kind of lovely white crystalline um, flat surfaces. It's kind of the same thing. We see, we see evidence of carbonates and sulfates in this delta and along the river channel that is consistent with the evaporation of water. So, Joby, how do you fit into the mission? Okay, so I'm on the science team for a very particular instrument that's on board the rover. The instrument is called Sherlock, and like everything at NASA, that is an acronym. It stands for Scanning Habitable Environments with Ramanan Luminescence for Organics and Chemicals. And I can almost never get that right first time, so I'm very pleased with myself. Uh, So this is a little spectrometer that we've built. Uh, that is going to be mounted onto the end of the robotic arm of the rover. So when the rover finds an interesting rock, or any kind of potential target in front of it that we want to examine, we will extend the rover arm, hover it over this the rock, the sample, and we will use our little spectrometer to scan it using an ultraviolet laser. Uh, we look at the light that comes back from that, that's scattered off the, off the, the surface of the rock, and the, we get a little kind of spectral signature that can tell us about what's kind of embedded in the rock itself. So what's the rock made of, and does it have any organic matter in it? But the thing I do, is data analysis. So I'm in, I've, you know, I did my PhD at Imperial College using Raman spectroscopy, which is one of the key techniques built into the spectrometer. So my uh, expertise is interpreting Raman spectra and identifying what kind of chemical compounds we're, det- we're observing. So that's gonna be what I'm, you know, that's my contribution to the project. <laughs> So like taking a spectrum and saying, oh, well, what is this? You know, can we work out what compound it is? You know, is this a chemical that could be made by a living thing or is it something that would occur through rocks reacting with one another? What Joby really means is that he could be the first person to see actual evidence for life on Mars. How cool is that? But how did a PhD student from Imperial get into such a position? Well, it's a bit strange because I am officially an astrobiologist now. But I didn't study astronomy or biology uh, at you know, either undergrad or PhD. Uh, so I'm quite surprised myself. 
I did a PhD in something that's known as plastic electronics. Uh, so this is like making solar panels and light emitting diodes using organic molecules. So like polymers and plastics to create flexible versions of those technologies. Uh, so that was what I studied. Uh, the, the connection to JPL is the fact that I was using Raman spectroscopy, this very specific analytical technique to study those materials. And it turns out those polymers are very similar to the kinds of molecules that you can find in living things. You know, things like molecules like DNA are built of roughly the same sorts of building blocks as some of the polymers that I was studying in solar cells. So it, it's an interesting and unexpected overlap. And my experience of looking at these molecules and understanding them and how they behave using Raman spectroscopy has that gave that was my foot in the door to working at JPL to study organic molecules on another planet. Wow, amazing role model to all uh, PhD students, I'm sure, across Imperial. Joby, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. That's quite all right. Thank you for having me. And that was Joby Hollis speaking to me there. That's your lot for another episode of Never Lick the Spoon. We're a podcast from the Institute for Molecular Science and Engineering at Imperial College London. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And if you like what you hear on the podcast, then please do leave us a good review. Until next time, as always, never lick the spoon!